Section 33 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Dialogue Between Horatio, Cleomenes, and Fulvia. Cleomenes. Always in haste, Horatio? Horatio. I must beg of you to excuse me. I am obliged to go. Cleomenes. Whether you have other engagements than you used to have, or whether your temper is changed, I cannot tell. But something has made an alteration in you, of which I cannot comprehend the cause. There is no man in the world whose friendship I value more than I do yours, or whose company I like better, yet I can never have it. I profess I have thought sometimes that you have avoided me on purpose. Horatio, I am sorry, Cleomenes, I should have been wanting in civility to you. I come every week constantly to pay my respects to you, and if I ever fail... I always send to inquire after your health. Cleomenes, no man outdoes Horatio in civility, but I thought something more was due to our affections and long acquaintance, besides compliments and ceremony. Of late I have never been to wait upon you, but you are gone abroad, or I find you engaged, and when I have the honor to see you here, your stay is only momentary. Pray pardon my rudeness for once. What is it that hinders you now from keeping me company for an hour or two? My cousin talks of going out, and I shall be all alone. Horatio, I know better than to rob you of such an opportunity for speculation. Cleomenes, speculation? On what, pray? Horatio, that vileness of our species and the refined way of thinking you have of late been so fond of, I call it the scheme of deformity, the partisans of which study chiefly to make everything in our nature appear as ugly and contemptible as it is possible, and to take uncommon pains to persuade men that they are devils. Cleomenes, if that be all, I shall soon convince you. Horatio, no conviction to me, I beseech you. I am determined and fully persuaded that there is good in the world as well as evil, and that the words honesty, benevolence, and humanity, and even charity are not empty sounds only, but that there are such things in spite of the fable of the bees, and I am resolved to believe that, notwithstanding the degeneracy of mankind and the wickedness of the age, there are men now living who are actually possessed of those virtues. Cleomenes, but you do not know what I am going to say. I am... Stroke. Horatio, that may be, but I will not hear one word. All you can say is lost upon me, and if you will not give me leave to speak out, I am gone this moment. That cursed book has bewitched you, and made you deny the existence of those very virtues that had gained you the esteem of your friends. You know this is not my usual language. I hate to say harsh things, but what regard can or ought one to have for an author that treats everybody de hot and boss, makes a jest of virtue and honor, calls Alexander the Great a madman, and spares kings and princes no more than anyone would the most abject of the people? The business of his philosophy is just the reverse to that of the herald's office. For, as there are always contriving and finding out high and illustrious pedigrees for low and obscure people, so your author is ever searching after and inventing mean contemptible origins for worthy and honorable actions, I am your very humble servant. Cleomenes, stay. I am of your opinion. What I offered to convince you of was how entirely I am recovered of the folly which you have so justly exposed. I have left that error. Horatio, are you in earnest? Cleomenes, no man more. There is no greater stickler for the social virtues than myself, and I much question whether there is any of Lord Shaftesbury's admirers that will go to my lengths. Horatio, 
I shall be glad to see you go my lengths first, and as many more as you please. You cannot conceive, Cleomenes, how it has grieved me when I have seen how many enemies you made yourself by that extravagant way of arguing. If you are but serious, whence comes this change? Cleomenes, in the first place, I grew weary of having everybody against me, and in the second, there is more room for invention in the other system. Poets and orators in the social system have fine opportunities of exerting themselves. Horatio, I very much suspect that recovery you boast of. Are you convinced that the other system was false, which you might have easily learned from seeing everybody against you? Cleomenes, false to be sure, but what you allege is no proof of it. For if the greatest part of mankind were not against that scheme of deformity, as you justly call it, insincerity could not be so general as the scheme itself supposes it to be. But since my eyes have been opened, I have found out that truth and probability are the silliest things in the world. They are of no manner of use, especially among the people de bon goût. Horatio, I thought what a convert you was, but what new madness has seized you now? Cleomenes, no madness at all. I say, and will maintain it to the world, that truth, in the sublime, is very impertinent, and that in the arts and sciences fit for men of taste to look into, a master cannot commit a more unpardonable fault than sticking to or being influenced by truth, where it interferes with what is agreeable. Horatio, homely truths indeed, stroke. Cleomenes, look upon that Dutch piece of the nativity. What charming coloring there is, what a fine pencil, and how just are the outlines for a piece so curiously finished, but what a fool the fellow was to draw hay and straw and water and a rack as well as a manger. It is a wonder he did not pull the bambino into the manger. Fulvia, the bambino? That is the child, I suppose. Why, it should be in the manger, should it not? Does not the history tell us that the child was laid in the manger? I have no skill in painting, but I can see whether things are drawn to the life or not. Sure, nothing can be more like the head of an ox than that there. A picture then pleases me best when the art in such a manner deceives my eye, that, without making any allowance, I can imagine I see things in reality which the painter has endeavored to represent. I have always thought it an admirable piece. Sure, nothing in the world can be more like nature. Cleomenes, like nature! So much the worse. Indeed, cousin, it is easily seen that you have no skill in painting. It is not nature, but agreeable nature, la belle natura, that is to be represented. All things that are abject, low, pitiful, and mean are carefully to be avoided and kept out of sight, because to men of the true taste they are as offensive as things that are shocking and really nasty. Fulvia, at that rate the Virgin Mary's condition and our Savior's birth are to never be painted. Cleomenes, that is your mistake. The subject itself is noble. Let us go but into the next room, and I will show you the difference. Stroke. Look upon that picture which is the same history. There is fine architecture. There is a colonnade. Can anything be thought of more magnificent? How skillfully is that ass removed, and how little you see of the ox. Pray, mind the obscurity they are both placed in. It hangs in a strong light, or else one might look ten times upon the picture without observing them. Behold, these pillars of the Corinthian order, how lofty they are, and what an effect they have, what a noble space, what an area here is, how nobly everything concurs to express the majestic grandeur of the subject, and strikes the soul with awe and admiration at the same time. Fulvia, pray, cousin, 
has good sense ever any share in the judgment which your men of true taste form about pictures? Horatio, Madam. Fulvia, I beg pardon, sir, if I have offended, but to me it seems strange to hear such commendations given to a painter for turning the stable of a country inn into a palace of extraordinary magnificence. This is a great deal worse than Swift's metamorphosis of Philemon and Baucis, for there some show of resemblance is kept in the changes. Horatio, in a country stable, madam, there is nothing but filth and nastiness, or vile abject things not fit to be seen, at least not capable, of entertaining persons of quality. Fulvia, the Dutch picture in the next room has nothing that is offensive, but an Augean stable, even before Hercules had cleaned it, would be less shocking to me than those fluted pillars, for nobody can please my eye that affronts my understanding." when I desire a man to paint a considerable history, which everybody knows to have been transacted at a country inn, does he not strangely impose upon me because he understands architecture? To draw me a room that might have served for a great hall or banqueting house to any Roman emperor? Besides, that the poor and abject state in which our Savior chose to appear at his coming into the world is the most material circumstance of the history. It contains an excellent moral against vain pomp, and is the strongest persuasive to humility, which, in the Italian, are more than lost. Horatio, indeed, madam, experience is against you, and it is certain that, even among the vulgar, the representations of mean and abject things, and such as they are familiar with, have not that effect, and either breathe contempt or are insignificant. Whereas vast piles, stately buildings, roofs of uncommon height, surprising ornaments, and all the architecture of the grand taste, are the fittest to raise devotion, and inspire men with veneration, and a religious awe for the places that have these excellencies to boast of. Is there ever a meeting-house or barn to be compared to a fine cathedral for this purpose? Fulvia, I believe there is a mechanical way of raising devotion in silly superstitious creatures, but an attentive contemplation of the works of God, I am sure. Stroke. Cleomenes, pray, cousin, say no more in defense of your low taste. The painter has nothing to do with the truth of history. His business is to express the dignity of the subject, and, in compliment to his judges, never to forget the excellency of our species. All his art and good sense must be employed in raising that to the highest pitch. Great masters do not paint for the common people, but for persons of refined understanding. What you complain of is the effect of the good manners and complacence of the painter. When he had drawn the infant and the Madonna, he thought the least glimpse of the ox and the ass would be sufficient to acquaint you with the history. They who want more fescuing and a broader explanation, he does not desire his picture should ever be shown to. For the rest, he entertains you with nothing but what is noble and worthy your attention. You see he is an architect, and completely skilled in perspective, and he shows you how finely he can round a pillar, and that both the depth and the height of a space may be drawn on a flat. With all the other wonders he performs by his skill in that inconceivable mystery of light and shadows. Fulvia, why then is it pretended that painting is an imitation of nature? Cleomenes, at first setting out, a scholar is to copy things exactly as he sees them, but from a great matter, when he is left to his own invention, it is expected he should take the perfections of nature, and not paint it as it is, but as we would wish it to be. Zeuxis, to draw a goddess, took five beautiful women, from which he culled what was most graceful in each. Fulvia, still every grace he painted was taken from nature. Cleomenes, that's true, but he left nature her rubbish, and imitated nothing but what was excellent, 
which made the assemblage superior to anything in nature. Demetrius was taxed for being too natural. Dionysus was also blamed for drawing men like us. Nearer our times, Michelangelo was esteemed too natural, and Lysippus of old upbraided the common sort of sculptors for making men such as they were found in nature. Fulvia, are these things real? Cleomenes, you may read it yourself in Graham's preface to The Art of Painting. The book is above in the library. Horatio, these things may seem strange to you, madam, but they are of immense use to the public. The higher we can carry the excellency of our species, the more those beautiful images will fill noble minds with worthy and suitable ideas of their own dignity that will seldom fail of spurring them on to virtue and heroic actions. There is a grandeur to be expressed in things that far surpasses the beauties of simple nature. You take delight in operas, madam, I do not question. You must have minded the noble manner and stateliness beyond nature, which everything there is executed with. What gentle touches, what slight and yet majestic motions are made use of to express the most boisterous passions. As the subject is always lofty, so no posture is to be chosen but what is serious and significant, as well as comely and agreeable. Should the actions there be represented as they are in common life, they would ruin the sublime, and at once rob you of all your pleasure. Fulvia, I never expected anything natural at an opera, but as persons of distinction resort hither, and everybody comes dressed, it is a sort of employment, and I seldom miss a night, because it is the fashion to go. Besides, the royal family and the monarch himself, generally honoring them with their presence, it is almost become a duty to attend them, as much as it is to go to court. What diverts me there is the company, the lights, the music, the scenes, and other decorations. But as I understand but very few words of Italian, so what is most admired in the recitativo is lost upon me, which makes the acting part to me rather ridiculous than stroke. Horatio, ridiculous, madam, for heaven's sake, stroke. Fulvia, I beg pardon, sir, for the expression. I never laughed at an opera in my life, but I confess, as to the entertainment itself, that a good play is infinitely more diverting to me, and I prefer anything that informs my understanding beyond all the recreations which either my eyes or my ears can be regaled with. Horatio, I am sorry to hear a lady of your good sense make such a choice. Have you no taste for music, madam? Fulvia, I named that as part of my diversion. Cleomenes, my cousin plays very well upon the harpsichord herself. Fulvia, I love to hear good music, but it does not throw me into those raptures I hear others speak of. Horatio, nothing certainly can elevate the mind beyond a fine concert. It seems to disengage the soul from the body and lift it up to heaven. It is in this situation that we are most capable of receiving extraordinary impressions. When the instruments cease, our temper is subdued, and beautiful action joins with a skillful voice in setting before us, in a transcendent light, the heroic labors we are come to admire and which the word opera imports. The powerful harmony between the engaging sounds and speaking gestures invades the heart and forcibly inspires us with those noble sentiments which to entertain the most expressive words can only attempt to persuade us. Few comedies are tolerable, and in the best of them, if the levity of the expressions does not corrupt, the meanness of the subject must debase the manners, at least to persons of quality. In tragedies the style is more sublime, and the subjects generally great, but all violent passions, and even the representations of them, ruffle and discompose the mind. Besides, when men endeavor to express things strongly, and they are acted to the life, it often happens that the images do mischief, because they are too moving, and the action is faulty for being too natural. 
and experience teaches us that in unguarded minds, by those pathetic performances, flames are often raised that are prejudicial to virtue. The playhouses themselves are far from being inviting, much less the companies, at least the greater part of them that frequent them, some of which are almost of the lowest rank of all. The disgusts that persons of the least elegance receive from these people are many, besides the ill sense and unseemly sights one meets with of careless rakes and impudent wenches that, having paid their money, reckon themselves to be all upon the level with everybody there. The oaths, scurrilities, and vile jests one is often obliged to hear without resenting them, and the odd mixture of high and low that are all partaking of the same diversion, without regard to dress or quality, are all very offensive, and it cannot but be very disagreeable to polite people to be in the same crowd with a variety of persons, some of them below mediocrity, that pay no deference to one another. At the opera, everything charms and concurs to make happiness complete. The sweetness of voice in the first place and the solemn composure of the action serve to mitigate and allay every passion. It is the gentleness of them and the calm serenity of the mind that make us amiable and bring us nearest to the perfection of angels, whereas the violence of the passions in which the corruption of the heart chiefly consists dethrones our reason and renders us more like unto savages. It is incredible how prone we are to imitation, and how strangely, unknown to ourselves, we are shaped and fashioned after the models and examples that are often set before us. No anger nor jealousy are ever to be seen at an opera that distort the features, no flames that are noxious, nor is any love represented in them that is not pure and next to seraphic. And it is impossible for the remembrance to carry anything away from them that can sully the imagination. Secondly, the company is of another sort. The place itself is a security to peace, as well as everyone's honor, and it is impossible to name another where blooming innocence and irresistible beauty stand in so little need of guardians. Here we are sure never to meet with petulancy or ill manners, and to be free from immodest ribaldry, libertine wit, and detestable satire. If you will mind, on the one hand, the richness and splendor of dress, and the quality of the persons that appear in them, the variety of colors and the luster of the fair in a spacious theater, well illuminated and adorned, and on the other, the grave deportment of the assembly and the consciousness that appears in every countenance, of the respect they owe each other, you will be forced to confess that upon earth there cannot be a pastime more agreeable. Believe me, madam, there is no place where both sexes have such opportunities of imbibing exalted sentiments and raising themselves above the vulgar, as they have at the opera, and there is no other sort of diversion or assembly, from the frequenting of which young persons of quality can have equal hopes of forming their manners and contracting a strong and lasting habit of virtue. Fulvia, you have said more in commendation of operas, Horatio, than I ever heard or thought of before, and I think everybody who loves that diversion is highly obliged to you. The grand gout, I believe, is a great help in panegyric especially where it is an incivility strictly to examine and over-curiously to look into matters. Cleomenes, what say you now, Fulvia, of nature and good sense? Are they not quite beat out of doors? Fulvia, I have heard nothing yet to make me out of conceit with good sense, though what you insinuated of nature, as if it was not to be imitated in painting, is an opinion, I must confess, which hitherto I more admire at than I can approve of it. Horatio, 
I would never recommend anything, madam, that is repugnant to good sense, but Cleomenes must have some design in overacting the part he pretends to have chosen. What he has said about painting is very true, whether he spoke it in jest or in earnest, but he talks so diametrically opposite to the opinion which he is known everywhere to defend of late, that I do not know what to make of him. Fulvia, I am convinced of the narrowness of my own understanding, and am going to visit some persons with whom I shall be more upon the level. Horatio, you will give me leave to wait upon your coach, madam. Stroke. Pray, Cleomenes, what is it you have got in your head? Cleomenes, nothing at all. I told you before that I was so entirely recovered from my folly that few people went my lengths. What jealousy you entertain of me I do not know, but I find myself much improved in the social system. Formerly I thought that chief ministers and all those at the helm of affairs acted from principles of avarice and ambition, that in all the pains they took, and even in the slaveries they underwent for the public good, they had their private ends, and that they were supported in the fatigue by secret enjoyments they were unwilling to own. It is not a month ago that I imagine that the inward care and real solicitude of all great men centered within themselves, and that to enrich themselves, acquire titles of honor, and raise their families on the one hand, and to have opportunities on the other of displaying a judicious fancy to all the elegant comforts of life, and establishing, without the least trouble of self-denial, the reputation of being wise, humane, and munificent, were the things which, besides the satisfaction there is in superiority and the pleasure of governing, all candidates to high offices and great posts propose to themselves from the places they sued for. I was so narrow-minded that I could not conceive how a man would ever voluntarily submit to be a slave but to serve himself. But I have abandoned that ill-natured way of judging. I plainly perceive the public good, in all the designs of politicians, the social virtues shine in every action and I find that the national interest is the compass that all statesmen steer by. Horatio, that is more than I can prove, but certainly there have been such men, there have been patriots, that without selfish views have taken incredible pains for their country's welfare. Nay, there are men now that would do the same if they were employed. And we have had princes that have neglected their ease and pleasure, and sacrificed their quiet to promote the prosperity and increase the wealth and honor of the kingdom, and had nothing so much at heart as the happiness of their subjects. Cleomenes, no disaffection, I beg of you. The difference between past and present times, and persons in and out of places, is perhaps clearer to you than it is to me. But it is many years ago, you know, that it has been agreed between us never to enter into party disputes. What I desire your attention to is my reformation, which you seem to doubt of, and the great change that is wrought in me. The religion of most kings and other high potentates I formerly had but a slender opinion of, but now I measure their piety by what they say of it themselves to their subjects. Horatio, that is very kindly done. Cleomenes, by thinking meanly of things, I once had strange blundering notions concerning foreign wars. I thought that many of them arose from trifling causes, magnified by politicians for their own ends, that the most ruinous misunderstandings between states and kingdoms might spring from the hidden malice, folly, or caprice of one man, that many of them had been owing to the private quarrels, piques, resentments, and the haughtiness of the chief ministers of the respective nations that were the sufferers, and that what is called personal hatred between princes seldom was more at first than either an open or secret animosity which the two great favorites of those courts had against one another, but now I have learned to derive those things from higher causes. I am reconciled likewise to the luxury of the voluptuous. 
which I used to be offended at, because now I am convinced that the money of most rich men is laid out with a social design of promoting arts and sciences, and that in the most expensive undertakings their principal aim is the employment of the poor. Horatio, these are lengths indeed. Cleomenes, I have a strong aversion to satire, and detest it every whit as much as you do. The most instructive writings to understand the world and penetrate into the heart of man I take to be addresses, epithets, dedications, and above all, the preambles to patents, of which I am making a large collection. Horatio, a very useful undertaking. Cleomenes, but to remove all your doubts of my conversion, I will show you some easy rules I have laid down for young beginners. Horatio, what to do? Cleomenes, to judge of men's actions by the lovely system of Lord Shaftesbury, in a manner diametrically opposite to that of the fable of the bees. Horatio, I do not understand you. Cleomenes, you will presently. I have called them rules, but they are rather examples from which the rules are to be gathered. As, for instance, if we see an industrious poor woman who has pinched her belly and gone in rags for a considerable time to save forty shillings, part with her money to put out her son at six years of age to a chimney-sweeper. To judge of her charitably, according to the system of the social virtues, we must imagine that though she never paid for the sweeping of a chimney in her life, she knows by experience that for want of this necessary cleanliness the broth has been often spoiled, and many a chimney has been set on fire, and therefore to do good in her generation, as far as she is able, she gives up her all, both offspring and estate, to assist in preventing the several mischiefs that are often occasioned by great quantities of soot disregarded, and, free from selfishness, sacrifices her only son to the most wretched employment for the public welfare. End of section 33